that's where that likelihood would be driven by that data. And then you can see, right, if you do it at those steps, and that doesn't mean monitor every step, but I'm just saying internal data should drive, when you get to your processing steps, there sh- it should drive what you see. It doesn't mean that you don't take into account that, you know, some competitor has had a recall and you guys make the same product. Okay, well, then it could happen, right? It it could happen. But it still should be driven by your internal data. What you see, what risk do you face? And you should define it that way, right? A whole new era of communication in the feed mill industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global feed mill industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a feed mill, to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Ivonic Animal Nutrition. We are sciencing the global food challenge. Welcome to the Feed Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the global feed mill industry. Ivonic Animal Nutrition is committed to ensure food security and safety while reducing the ecological footprint of animal farming. Its products and services use evidence-based solutions that seek to promote animal welfare and reduce reliance on natural resources. All this is underpinned by long-standing industry partnerships and deep customer understanding. Ivonic's focus on efficiency, sustainable, healthy nutrition, and collaborations with livestock farming partners creates value for customers and consumers. Welcome to the Feed Science Podcast. Uh, I'm Ron Hollenbeck. Uh, We're going to uh, discuss feed and food safety today. Our guest is Scott Hawks from Talk Strategies. Uh, Welcome, Scott. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Thank you for inviting me. Mm -hmm. Well, Scott, if you'd start out, uh, just kind of give a little background on yourself, your company, uh, just to give the the audience a little bit of background and understanding of of your experiences and where you come from. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm originally, I'm I'm, I'm from Michigan. I went to uh, Michigan State University and studied food science. Um, I'm a protein chemist and uh, microbiologist by training, and um, I liked research. I did some research at uh, Purdue University, at Cornell University, and uh, uh, various topics, but mostly protein, uh, protein technology. Uh, and then I at Cornell ended up working in their pilot plant, which worked with local New York State industry, um, mostly companies that were smaller companies, uh, didn't have a lot of resources. So we were sort of an extension for them to help them bring their products to market. Um, but also, um, the, the, we worked with l- much larger companies, you know, anything in the top 100 food companies, we helped develop pilot scale products, which was my foreway into food safety, because in order to like, if you want to make a a certain amount of yogurt for uh, a food safety, you know, demonstration, or if you want to make 
uh, take a flavor and put it into a product and take it to a trade show and pass it out. You have to have a HACCP certification. So that was really my first foray into, oh, okay, it's not just making unique products, but how do you do it <laughs> so that people don't get sick, and, and but at the same time have a process that's doable. Um, and so after that, I worked for a company called Covance Laboratories, which is now they've been purchased by Eurofins, but it was Covance at the time. They did a lot of uh, food chemistry and microbiology to support label claims, and also when people had issues with products, right? You send up, you do a lot of testing. And I was in technical sales for them. Um, so I ended up helping clients more, rather than sell, it was more helping root cause analysis and also how to design studies to gather data in a in some type of cost effective way where you can get your answers, but it doesn't cost you a quarter million dollars to do it. Um, so that was fun. Um, with Covance, I went. I was sent over to Singapore to build a nutrition laboratory and um, and a micro lab in Singapore. So uh, that was um, you know in two thousand seven. I was gonna do that and come back in a couple of years but i met some folks from nestle and stayed another four uh, years and worked for nestle implementing iso 22,000 standards in the various uh production facilities r&d facilities supporting that that region and supporting the r&d center in singapore um so uh learned learned a lot there came back to the u.s and ended up working for a pet food uh, company uh, wellness and implementing right at now we're, we're up to around uh, 2011 implementing FISMA standards because now they rolled out and in, in the pet food in their um, kibble facility. And so did that over four years. Uh, great learnings. That was, a, that was very interesting to work in that industry. And then I went to um, work uh, for Tata Global Beverages, they own Tetley Tea, Eight O'clock Coffee, uh, some other some other brands, uh, implementing the FISMA standards on the food on the food side. So there was some big learnings uh, because it was coffee and tea. It's a little different food category than some of the ready to eat uh, things that you do. Um, and then after that, I, I met some folks from Tox Strategies. And they said, would you come work for us? So I ventured out into consulting, and that's where I'm a senior consultant for food safety and and, uh, and regulatory affairs. So that's sort of a long story of how I ended up here. <laughs> sure. Well, good. Thank you. As we think about feed and food safety, I mean, that's a, a huge topic. Uh, we're obviously in... Uh, the the time frame of this podcast where there's no we won't cover everything we'll just barely scratch the surface in in this discussion but um, as it comes to to feed and food safety um, you know what's uh, you know a, a critical a critical component of of, of you know creating uh, you know, a, a quality food safety plan as well as meeting all the 
the FISMA requirements. I mean, I know there's a there's a long list of things that need to be covered, but what in your mind, what do you are the you know maybe the most uh, the one or two most important that we could actually discuss and and do justice in a, in the length of this podcast? Yep, yep. I think it, it's approaching no matter right any manufacturing. Uh, so right now we're talking feed and food, but I don't care if you're making chairs or cars. You, you have to approach it with the attitude of you are the master of your product and your process, right? So I get that it's nerve wracking when FDA or third party auditor comes into your facility. Um, there's always, right, that's always a sort of a tension there. But at the end of the day, if, um, if I'm in my plant, you will not come in and tell me how I operate. I will tell you how I operate because I've, because I've asked the questions, is what I'm making safe? Is what I'm making compliant? Um, is what I'm making support the quality and stability of the product? And I have a lot of people there that have also, right, day to day, in and out, they deal with those problems that come up. And so they really are, it's not from a position of arrogance, it's a position of, well, we make the product, so we are the masters of how to do it. But the most important thing that anybody in this field, which is a science field, can do is ask the right question. So we talk about experts, right? And so, and I know I, uh, I get paid to be one. But the most important thing is that you ask the right question. If I ask the right question, I will get 10 people that can answer it. And it might be uh, the guy on the third shift extruder machine. Um, it might be uh, a, an outside consultant, a microbiologist. But if I ask the wrong question, everybody's effort is directed at the wrong things. So that's asking those right questions is how you develop your food safety plan. Um, The most important thing about a food safety plan, and and you can kind of see it, and this is also any other part of, of FISMA, is that you do your hazard analysis correctly. So, um. I don't think we can get GMPs is, is its own foundation. And we'll just say that sanitation, which is the cornerstone of everything, cleaning, housekeeping, sanitation, is the, you have to get that right. And there's a whole, right, we could spend an hour talking about that. But uh, if for GMPs, get the sanitation correct, meaning doing the right things at the right time and verifying that they're working. But for this, for FISMA, hazard analysis, uh, risk assessment is something that um, I just see it day in and day out. Um, it, and it isn't that people don't know their operation. It's that they, they know their operation so well, they sort of... It's like a pilot flying a plane that's running smoothly. There's not much to do. It's going well. But risk assessment is about asking those questions, right? So the first one is, um, um, you know, because preventive control is always a confusing thing to people. Is it a preventive control? Is it not? The first question to ask 
is what if I did nothing? What if I didn't do anything? Um, and by that, I mean, what if I take my raw material and I just make the product and I don't have any controls, right? And I put it out on the market. What would happen? So if your answer to that is, I wouldn't want to do that because somebody's going to get sick. There's probably a preventive control or in feed, I wouldn't want to do that. Animals are going to die. There's probably a preventive control in there somewhere, right? But it, but as a first question, uh, you make it simple. Now, it isn't always because some people might say, well, Scott, if I ask that question, every food's going to have preventive control. That's not true. So think of coffee. What if I what if I took green coffee and, and for people, right? So you take the green coffee beans, you roast them at a high temperature, and you put them in a bag, right? You grind them, um, and people either make cold brew coffee or they make hot brew. But if I didn't do anything, anything other than my process, run it through that process, no one would be harmed by coffee. Nobody has been. Now you can get into flavored coffees and you get into allergens, right? There's been recalls and things. So that's always, but in general, coffee is, that's a very safe product, but that question still holds like, what if I didn't do anything? Okay. Well, probably nothing. Now what people will say is, well, so you're saying, Scott, no controls, but that's not true either, right? GMP is control, right? When I clean it's a control. So that's where I think people get confused about preventive control. Um, if you, you probably remember when HACCP first came out, everything was a critical control point because nobody wanted to miss it. Um, and then we, we got more sophisticated and said, mm, that's actually not, it's this step. Preventive controls are like that where you want to have a decision tree asking questions like, um, you know, similar to, to has of, you know, is, is this, is there a hazard? Is it significant? Um, is, does this step eliminate it, reduce it? Um, but it's applying that to things like uh, cleaning a piece of equipment as opposed to pasteurizing some product. Right. So it's much more broad. Um, but it's those questions that help you do hazard analysis rather than um, being an, an answer type society where it's like, no, Scott, that's not a problem because we have this. Well, then now you're now you're getting ahead of yourself and you won't do the risk assessment properly. And when when HACCP came out or at least my experience as we were going through the hazard analysis and feed mills. Um, my mind was around, uh, you know, a, pre- a preventive control was, I'll call it like more of an engineering control. You were trying to, how do we engineer out that, uh, that, that potential hazard, just like you would from, uh, you know, OSHA and, uh, and other safety type, uh, type items. And so, yeah, we ended up. Heck, everything had a whole list of, of of controls, and everything was a critical control point because we weren't thinking about it correctly when when we went down that path, and ended up having to back up and do it again. But 
we learned from it, but it was it was painful and and to some extent intimidating, I guess, at the time. But after we after we worked through the process and actually got the food safety plan in place, for the most part, it's really pretty common sense. It's stuff we should have been doing anyway. And in most cases, we were, but there were some areas that, yeah, they just, we weren't thinking about it, and it slipped through the cracks. Yeah, yes. It's, uh, it's you want to make it expansive. So one of the more common failures in, in a plan is they people do not identify all the potential hazards. And, and some of it is because we, we tend to have an operation mindset, right? So if I say, well, yeah, you're bringing salmonella in with the chicken meal to make the, you know, so that's a hazard. No, 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 Scott, we control that. It goes through the extruder. But when you're doing the hazard analysis, like, no, first we're going to identify all the potential hazards. We'll get to the are they significant later? And then what controls? And so it's very easy. Uh, like you had said, it can drive you crazy because you have to compartmentalize and say, okay, what are all the hazards? All right, now I have the hazards um, that are associated with the ingredients, with the process steps. And then, then I get into what is the likelihood? And likelihood is probably the biggest the most common failure I see because the probability and that's difficult. One is what I talked about. People assess likelihood and say, well, it's not going to happen. We have controls, but likelihood is to be determined without controls. It goes back to that question. What if I did nothing? And so that first step is, okay, if I didn't have any controls, what's the probability this hazard would would go out and cause some significant, right? And so that, um, people are a little nervous to do that because then they think, oh my God, well, then everything's going to be a hazard. Um, But of course it's not because you can also check and see if in your food category, um, do I find salmonella out there in recalls, in in import alerts uh, have there been right withdrawals warning letters is this a problem in the category that i'm in um and sometimes it's not and then you have to dig a little deeper and say why is that right some of it could be controls but some of it is there's a natural association of certain hazards with certain products um, and so it's that, but, but it, one of the biggest is that people do likelihood with the idea of control in mind. And really first you have to look and say, what it, what is the likelihood someone that this hazard's going to get out there without those controls. And then we can go and look at how we mitigate it. The biggest mistake I see in severity, which is the other portion of the equation is people also get it mixed with control and they'll say they'll pick salmonella and it should be the highest severity because it can cause death. Um, but for, for pets, say mycotoxin, aflatoxin, right? It'll kill pets. Um, that severity through your entire hazard analysis does not change. But people will sort of get confused and say, 
oh, well, this mitigates and therefore it's less severe. And they, 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 so you'll see, you'll go down and say, well, why did the severity of aflatoxin change? Right. So that, that is, um, you really have to think about that and target animal matters, right? Uh, you know, if, if, if I were talking about aflatoxin for pets, but then there was some other target animal where there was never, never an outcome and it didn't pass through to humans. All right. Well, I, I probably have to look and justify maybe a lower severity for that. But once you pick it and base it on that, it doesn't change, or at least I have not seen a situation where somebody could explain why it changed in your hazard analysis. Um, so those are just to cover those. those. Yeah, and, and that makes sense to me, the, the severity. That that part I didn't struggle with because I don't know why that one makes sense, that it's, it's, it's either severe or it's not. And hopefully the controls that are in place later uh, make it so it is it's it's not a hazard. But I struggled very much with uh, the the initial um, um, likelihood. Uh, I instantly my mind went through the process. You know, the final product going out and, okay, it's not likely that's going to happen. Well, yeah, that process didn't work. I mean, when we got to the end and when you actually identified all of the preventive controls, you know, then after after all the preventive controls, certainly the likelihood decreased. But uh, I, I understand uh, how, how you need to approach it in the beginning. But I know for me personally, I I I jumped to the end with uh, with what I thought the likelihood would be, and of course that created more rework because we did it wrong. Yeah, yeah, it's a hard, you know. And there's two different approaches. So when we're talking about what's inherent in an ingredient, we can go to those databases, right? Uh, FDA's warning letters and import alerts and recalls and. We can kind of get an idea, oh, you know, this ingredient has a high number of recalls associated with this has. Okay, well, the likelihood then is is high. When we get to processing steps, though, um, that method, although it's still in, in my mind because it is uh, being made by a plant that's handling that ingredient, and so it's in there somewhere. But that's where the internal data is much more valuable. So, uh, and and my biggest learning was actually arguing with plant managers where I would say, well, that's pretty high likelihood. And they would, they're like, show me, prove that to me. And so then you you start gathering data and saying, you know, we actually have never seen this in our, in our receding. It's never showed up and we test for it every lot. So that's where that likelihood would be driven by that data. And then you can see, right, if you do it at those steps, and that doesn't mean monitor every step, but I'm just saying internal data should drive, when you get to your processing steps, there sh- it should drive what you see. It doesn't mean that you don't take into account that 
you know, some competitor has had a recall and you guys make the same product. Okay, well, then it could happen, right? It, it could happen. But it still should be driven by your internal data. What you see, what risk do you face? And you should define it that way, right? So um, I might say for an ingredient, um, this has never been seen in that ingredient in the whole that I can find in the history of these databases. That that would be a low risk rating. Um, this happen this happens every you know two weeks in the in the warning letters. You know it's always in there. All right, well that's a high likelihood for that ingredient for your processing step. Same thing. We haven't seen it in the history of our company at this step, and then that would be low. Or for some things, yeah, of course, it's in every lot. Like if I'm receiving chicken meal, yep. If I test it, I know it's going to be there. Okay, well, that's a high. That's a high likelihood for that receiving uh, for that receiving step that you see it there. Um, it's an example, but let when you get to process, let some of the data that you've spent the money collecting drive your likelihood, and then you can kind of see. That's where when you are talking to auditors, you are the master. You have a reason why you rated it that way. It wasn't just because you were uncomfortable with giving it a high rating. It's like, we know this is something that has to be controlled. Or we also know we don't want to waste our resources on this step because we want to control the ones that actually are the big risk. Right, because some people will pull resources away and try to cover everything, but you really want your resources dedicated to those things where you found a significant risk. Okay, and you said early on, you know, it's the most critical or important thing to do is ask the right questions. So, as you go into a facility, and like you. The, the one you just referenced where you were talking with the, the plant manager plant manager and they said you know that we don't have that problem prove it to me how do you how do you lead those people to to, to ask the right questions to to understand it and get it right without beating them over the head and and, and telling them you know you're wrong I mean how do you lead them to that? Yeah, you never want to, right? Because the first thing is, I don't know that they're wrong, right? But they don't know they're, but they don't know they're right. So I usually make it, you know, like, um, because it's money to spend. So if you say prove it, it's like, okay, I can prove it, but I'll have to do some testing, some looking, some inspecting, uh, and that costs money and time. Um, but they do understand. It's like, um, it, it is about probabilities. So I use the chicken meal example again. If I go test that chicken meal, I'm going to find salmonella. And, and the probability that I was going to find it through testing is very low. So if I get a hit, I mean, it's, it's there. It's there because I was never going to find it. So that's something about testing. People put a little bit too much false hope in testing. If I don't find it, it doesn't mean it's not there. But if I find it, it's a pretty systemic thing because the probability that I was ever going to find it by taking a sample and testing it 
is very low. That's why that's why FDA, right, when they when they react to to something they found in the marketplace that tested positive, there's eight people at that plant because they know they know like this is not the probability that we were going to pull a package off a shelf, test it, and find uh, any kind of hazard that's not homogeneously distributed through the product was zero. So we found that that means there's a significant problem at that facility. And that's why they do. That's why they react the way they do. So, so if, if I do, I don't have to do a lot of testing. If I think it's a, if I think it's high um, and it's, and it's really, you know, not a problem at all, I'll find that it'll show up. And then if it does, it's a huge, it's, it's a, it's a big problem because I wasn't really going to, going to find that. So it's an example of that. That might be how I say we can do this with a small budget, but it's a question, not something just that I want answered. You want it answered because it's your business risk. And then we'll deal with the data pragmatically on what do we do, right? The answer in extrusion is we'll segregate it from the, plant where we're making the stuff, right? It, people won't just walk through and then walk through the whole plant. I mean, there's already mitigation uh, strategies for that. But always remember that the plant manager, the operations people, they live by, they have to balance two things. I think it's some of the hardest stuff to do. They have to balance profit, right, and output. And, and they're ruled by the sales revenue, right? So if there's, so if sales go down, the, the pressure becomes more on operations. And I'm not telling you anything, but people might not know that. So always come humble with the question rather than, rather than this is what you need to do, or I'm the expert and I know. But if I pose that question and they say prove it, it's like, well, I can't prove it. I'm asking it. I'm just saying, if you have an answer or your team does, let's, let's go, let's, I bet they do. I bet they do have an answer. A lot of times what you'll find out is there'll be a quality person saying, yeah, I know that's been, yeah, that's been a problem. I brought it up, but um, that's how I think. Questions are, everybody likes to get it right. um, So they may react initially, like not like it. But I think if you just put it in that way, we're just trying to get the answer so we can mitigate the, you know, so that we can pragmatically manage a business risk. Um, I don't want to dedicate resources to something that's not needed. But because you're talking about someone, uh, animal or human could be harmed, I don't want to leave that question unanswered. And most people don't want to leave that unanswered either. I don't know if that helps, but that's that's how I've always dealt. And I've always found that uh, once you show that you understand that the operation, you know, like you can't just follow everything. That's why I say the right question, not every question, the right questions, which requires some thought on the whoever the expert is, that is the person that should Really think about these things and pose them. And the rest of the, I, I've not seen it yet where 
when I posed the question, there was a maintenance person, there was an operations person, there was a quality person. And if none of those people could answer it, then you could go outside and, and they would do it. But many times it was the people on the floor making the product that said, oh, I didn't realize that was important. Well, you should look at this. And, and oh, I didn't know that. It's, that's how you get it. And you approach that a few times, right? And you know, having been in operations, operations knows who's wasting their time and who's like, okay, I'll listen to what they say because last time, they really helped us dodge a bullet, or um, they helped us gain some efficiency here, um, right? So that's the other thing. You, uh, I've been in places where they were spending twelve hours cleaning a, a line that was complicated, and you looked at it, and you're like, first of all, it's not cleanable. That that part of your line, you're wasting your twelve hours. Here's how I think you should approach it and take your time and put it elsewhere. Um, where you can really mitigate a risk. And operations remembers that, right? Because they're like, well, you just saved us. That's that's 10 hours of downtime you saved us. And we we thought we were mitigating a risk that we weren't. Um, so, yeah, and, it, and it's very, very true that uh, certainly in a food safety plan, you've got to involve everybody. Um, I've... I've been uh, involved with companies who early on, when SESMA first first rolled out, the food safety plan was written at corporate and handed down and said, just modify this to fit your plant. Well, then it becomes one of those programs that, yep, you've checked the box, you have a binder, you have a book that sits on the shelf and collects dust. That doesn't work if you're going to, going to be in compliance with FISMA. And it's, it's amazing how many people, you know, took that approach and we hired a consultant to help us because I mean, hell I've, I've proven with what I've said, I had no clue of what we were supposed to be doing. Um, And that was the message he drove home every time he was there, that this has to be, a living document. You have to live it. it uh, it's it's we we don't do something because it is uh, a food safety or a FISMA requirement. We this is just how we conduct business now. And driving that that culture uh, into a plant is it's not it's not easy. Uh, and you've got to. You really have to, it has to drive, uh, well, I shouldn't say it has to drive what you do. It just becomes part of what you do, not something we do special because we have a third-party audit coming in or uh, or we're expecting to, you know, have the FDA come in or something and do a food safety audit. It's, I mean, it becomes a culture. Yeah, and 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 honestly, I've, been through quite a few FDA and state audits. Um, I never had a problem with it. I, I got into an argument here and there, but with justification and data on why something was done. And guess what? Sometimes it was like, yeah, I still don't agree with you, you know, and, and you would go. But ultimately, the difference was 
you came with data. There was a reason you were doing something. It wasn't just because they said, well, what about aflatoxin and everybody's got a blank stare? Then, right, or or let me pull out a napkin. I wrote this down somewhere, right? It's, if you come with, I am the master of my product and process. Here's how we do it. Like, um, I always tell people, a food safety plan or the foreign spire verification program, whatever it is, remember it's a presentation because, yes, you understand it because you've been through it many times, but the person who you're presenting to hasn't. So set it up to walk them through step-by-step how you got to the place you got to. And I I just rarely have had a problem where people didn't say, okay, and even when there was, they understood that you had a rationale based on something other than you just didn't want to do it or something like that. It was based on, I asked this question, I went and got some data or I went and got some literature and this is why we do it the way we do it. That that goes a long way for an auditor, even if they don't agree with you it will be a very different experience than if nobody's asked questions. And like you said, if you don't have your operations involved, so it's like one person knows this and the rest of the people are like, you know, talk to so-and-so. Yeah. 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 It's pretty clear what, uh, when, when you actually start talking to people, is it, is it truly how you do business or is it, is it that book on the shelf that we pull out when, when you show up to audit us? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And and training comes into it too, right? After you get this set up by talking to so that maintenance understands their role. Like this is the plan, but you guys, you know, this is how you can look at things. Maybe, like you said, maybe there's a better way to design what we do so that we don't spend 10 hours cleaning. We design something that's either more cleanable or we don't have to clean it at all because we kept, it was open to an environment. Now it's closed, right? So we, so when you involve each person and say, here's, here's the risk and here's your role in it. Um, they will, most of the time people are like, Oh, I didn't know that. Well, you know, when we do the handover, we really should do this first. They'll tell you most of the time. Um, and it doesn't take that long. I'm not talking about a three-day course. It's a. It's just here's what's relevant for you um, in this in this plan, and I need your help because you have the expertise. I don't, and I've had a lot of, and that goes with operators. I mean, most of my knowledge has come from just talking to people that make the product. That it's amazing what I have learned from them. It's time for our famous three. Well, this is, has been an interesting conversation for me, but uh, we're, we probably should uh, wrap this up. So um, let's, uh, th- th- there's a few questions I'd like to ask at the end. Uh, you know, what is your, your favorite uh, feed or food science uh, resource that, that you go to uh, on a regular basis for uh, for information. Yep, I have. So I have several um, 
books that I go to when, since we're talking about risk assessment, um, one is a HACCP book written uh, it's by Sarah Mortimer and Carol Wallace. Excellent book. I think it's on its third edition. But uh, it's a, you know, that's something that um, anybody in, in, in that field, you should take a little time in your day to read something like that. Right. So that you see how other people have approached this and taken the time to write it down. So but that's a great book on HACCP, but it applies to any hazard analysis. Um, There's uh, the food microbiology uh, edition six, seven, eight. So you can go in there and find out about microorganisms and uh, what kind of food products um, it talks. It's really helpful on sampling. It's really helpful on um, specifications, microbiological specifications, because that's always confusing. It talks a little bit about testing. So it's a good, good sources. Um, those, those are probably the two that I use uh, the two sources that I use the most um there there are others but even um mycotoxins in that food microbiology series that they 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 talk about mycotoxins how to sample properly for mycotoxins and things like that so i would say those are the books the other one that's good for anybody and i would highly recommend it for anybody in management uh it, it not it's not a technical book is the one food safety culture by frank yanis that's a great, it's about 80 pages. It's very simple. I, I had an operational leader who, who read it and actually looked at our food auditing program and like told, made it 100% more effective uh, because he talks about behavior, like why do people do things that then cause food safety systems to fail? It was a, it's a great, but it's, it's a very simple read, Food Safety Culture by so I highly recommend that one too. Okay. Uh, well, the the last question, I guess, is um, in, in your opinion, what people in the the, the feed and food safety world, uh, what uh, what characteristics or what would set somebody the the people who are the most successful? What would separate them from people who are, say, less successful in that uh, industry? Yeah, um, probably the same things, right, that make anybody successful. So there's there's dedication, right? You need a certain work ethic. Um, in, in, in the food safety, although I would argue in anyone, uh, the most important thing, first of all, is to be humble. The, the hardest thing for a subject matter uh, expert um, or somebody technical is you know a lot. You have a lot of answers in your head, you, you know. But if you are a little bit more like, well, I don't know everything, you will go back to that, ask the right question, and let others that actually know a lot more about whatever operation you're going into they know a lot more than you think they do. So if you approach it with that humbleness, I would say that's important because it will lead to that ask the right question. You can get to the right answers later, but, but that would be that. Um, the other thing is moral clarity. 
And what I what I mean by that, so we you know, there's three categories of risk, food safety risk, compliance risk, quality risk, right? That that's our general. But the first question we should ask ourselves is do I feel okay that something out there might harm somebody, an animal or a person, right? And the answer is probably no, I don't. But do I, would I feel good if I didn't do my use my dedication and write questions such that I burdened my company so much that they went out of business and couldn't produce profitably, right? So it's that moral clarity of, uh, this is a when you get to disposition of product, right? Which which you will get to a lot, and and the decisions you make around that will will either increase your influence with the business if you make good decisions, or right, you've had the expert work. It's like nobody wants to talk to you. Uh, and and they don't. It's just a reality. I mean, human beings. That's how we interact. So be that person that understands the difference between no, this can't go out the door because I understand um, that we can't harm people or animals, or I don't want to harm people or animals. But in this case, I believe we have a we can manage it. We can we can protect people and. So that may be a little out there, philosophical, but, you know, if you think about what's helped you in your career is that people can trust what you say. People people have some faith that you also care about their how they're measured and their success. And I don't know about you, but those people, they're like gold in an organization and they're well-respected. And I mean from the CEO all the way down to the people on the floor of the plant, that person, you can always tell who it is. Um, and it doesn't mean that they're yes people. They're respected because of this moral clarity where they're asking questions and they're interested. I don't want you to fail and I don't want me to fail and we don't want to harm anybody. So that's, I don't, I hope that helps people, but uh, you know, if you want, if, if young people, People want to know more about that. Read about great people who were who were better, way better at it than I ever was in terms of leadership. And look at George Washington, Ben Franklin, Winston Churchill is a great one to read um, because he actually describes his thinking while he was making tough decisions. So read about great people, and you can learn a lot about how you should comport yourself. Because at the end of the day, you're either working together and you'll be successful or you'll be this person who knows the thing, but no one will listen to you. Yep. Very, very true. Um, Scott, I, this has been very enjoyable for me. Uh, thank you very much for your insights and your time. Thanks, Rob. Um, well, this uh, will conclude the Feed Science Podcast for this episode. Uh, I'm Ron Hollenbeck. Thank you for listening. Thanks, Ron. Thanks, Ron.